pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today. She is going to pose a question and answer it for us, a question that a lot of us are going, yeah, what are NFTs and why on earth are people paying millions for them? That is actually, the minus the on earth part, uh, is actually the title of an article written at theconversation.com by our guest, Professor Lale Samarbaksh. She is an associate professor of finance in the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University in Toronto. Professor Samar Baksh, Lale, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Stowing. It's a pleasure to have you with us. This whole NFT phenomenon is very new. How new? How long have non-fungible tokens been a thing? Uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. And uh, I would like to start by answering your question. NFTs, in fact, started in late 2019, but they really picked up uh, during the 2020. And I would say probably uh, the pandemic was an assistance to the growth of NFT because you had more and more people uh, glued to their internet and their um, social media. So uh, the peak of it happened in late 2020 and early 20, uh, early 2021. So in fact, Lale, the uh, the pandemic turned out to be the perfect storm in, in which uh, this phenomenon could grow. Again, given the fact that so many people had the time to pay attention and get involved. Absolutely. I, I agree with that statement. And the fact that we had more and more uh, social media platforms, um, in fact, emerging uh, during and after pandemic. Uh, a good example is Clubhouse. Like it, this is a platform where people have conversations like it's only audio, no video uh, sharing. And in fact, it's like a live radio chat uh, and uh, a lot of NFT, um, in fact, marketing is happening through Clubhouse, which is very popular with the younger generation. Oh, okay. I was just about to ask, and thank you for opening that door. Who is most likely to be involved with, attracted to, and later investing in NFTs? Is there a, a demographic group, Lale, that is more um, inclined to, to want it to, to drift in this direction? Absolutely. Um, in terms of answering that question, um, I'd like to first talk a little bit about what an NFT is so that the audience can follow through the conversation. Oh, that, okay. that would be extremely helpful. And then we'll find out what particular demographic group is attracted to them. But yes, absolutely. Let's start with what the heck are we talking about in the first place? <laughs> sure. So NFT is, uh, it stands for non-fungible token. Right. And I know the name itself doesn't help much, so I'm going to explain a little bit more what fungibility is and what is a non-fungible token. Perfect. So fungibility, sure, fungibility is uh, the ability to convert, uh, let's say, an asset, think about a dollar, uh, into another um, form that is exactly identical. Like if you and I uh, switch a loony, we still end up with uh, the same exact value. Right. Same goes with Bitcoin. Like if I have one Bitcoin and I exchange it with another Bitcoin, I will have exactly the same value. So this uh, uh, particular characteristic is called fungibility, and it's one of the main properties of uh, currency, let's say. Uh, with NFTs, these are non-fungible tokens. What it means is that there are no two NFTs that are similar. Ah. So that makes us, yeah, so that makes us think, what, what does that uh, mean then? So think about art and art collection. Think about real estate. So think about like Mona Lisa. There's only one Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. There's only, there are no two houses that are exactly identical. So non-fungibility is that property. And then NFT is in fact a digital file with verified identity and ownership. Uh, that is, uh, that verification and ownership is done using blockchain technology. So um, the long story short, we now, it means that this is something that should attract a lot of artists particularly digital artists, in order to sell and exchange their, uh, um, in fact, their art. And at the same time, it's also attractive to people into uh, people who are interested in cryptocurrencies. So in, uh, because the crypto technology behind and the blockchain technology behind is also opening the door to future valuation of um, these um, verified 
um, files, mm. verified identity files. And we saw so that we, ask, we saw that digital art. There was a piece of digital art sold at Christie's for just under sixty-four million U.S. dollars uh, recently, and that obviously would be one of a kind. How do you know that, though? How how what sort of get you talked about blockchain? This whole thing is backed by blockchain technology. Can we talk about what blockchain is and how solid a backing this whole phenomenon actually has? Absolutely. So a blockchain is a technology that uses the cryptography. Cryptography is a part of mathematics that um, over years, like historically, it's been basically used to um, crypto, um, to be able to, um, in fact, verify the authenticity uh, without uh, having to exchange, let's say, passwords in one place. So imagine that there's a password and the pieces of that password are stored in multiple places. Okay. This is what we call decentralization, right? So um, in fact, the blockchain technology allows a decentralized open source technology with a smart contract functionality. So I have a smart contract that allows uh, verification and identification of my ownership, but the pieces of it is stored in so many places that, in fact, it's always unhackable. Like, you, it cannot be, the pieces are stored everywhere. So, um, and, and, yeah, so in small, <laughs> I would say, description, I can say that it's a decentralized but open source, so everyone can check the verification. It's as if I have a house and everyone can check the title sure, yeah. of my house. But now, but now think about it in a digital world with a digital asset, and the fact that it's unhackable, so it's um, it's hack proof. Okay, so who's in charge? Uh, I, I mean, I appreciate the unhackability and the decentralized nature of blockchain, but I mean, uh, again, from a consumer point of view, Lolly, it's not unusual to go. Okay, who's running the show here? Who's in charge? Who's ultimately accountable? That's a very good point, and that's where some standards come into picture. So we have platforms, for example, uh, Ethereum is one of the platforms that is very popular for sure. NFT, and they, in fact, issue standards. So there are standards for these smart contracts, I would say. Um, it's hard to put one nation or one name as in terms of who is in charge, mm -hmm. like I said, because of the nature of the decentralized uh, ownership, um, but there are platforms like to begin with. Bitcoin uh, had its own platforms. Ethereum is more popular with NFTs because the technology allows um, um, advanced uh, decentralization and uh, um, allows like uh, working with uh, digital arts as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're talking about serious amounts of money. Again, a piece of digital art selling for $64 million. Elon Musk has uh, tweeted out a song about NFTs that he wanted to sell as an NFT. And the bids are into the millions for that already. Some serious money involved here. So again, it's not, uh, I think, out of line for people to go, well, where's, who's, who's keeping an eye on all of this? Who's, who's, who's in, again, who's the securities regulator to make sure the, the consumer who wants to play ball doesn't get completely ripped off? That's a very, very good uh, question, uh, Sterling. So um, um, I would say in terms of um, um, validation, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the blockchain technology allows that validation. Okay. However, in terms of standardization and securitization, we haven't seen securitization for NFT yet. That means it hasn't become an official security right. being traded on the on the traditional platforms that we're used to. But I also want to keep uh, an open eye for the potential because um, this is what we're talking about is about the world of digital art. So, mm -hmm. so far, it's been very hard to value or sell digital arts, right? right. And this is for the first time NFT is allowing that. And that's why the... The art, um, so to answer your earlier question, so the population that's very mesmerized with that is, in fact, the digital art uh, creators. Um, so the Christie's auction that you mentioned, it was a piece of digital art mm -hmm, that yes. was being uh, traded. Yeah, And uh, we also had Nike using um, NFT to patent one of the designs of their uh, sneakers. Sure. And then um, also, uh, I would say one more example is... Um, 
uh, you probably heard of crypto ca- uh, crypto kitties. So this is one of the, uh, again, small digital art items that people use a lot in online gaming. Ah. Another source of popularity for NFTs from online gaming. So think about it as um, you want to change your profile picture on Facebook to something, right? Okay. But imagine uh, you cannot do uh, that if you don't have the uh, ownership. So okay. that's what that NFT is about. This our guest joining us from Ryerson University and the Ted Rogers School of Management is finance professor Lale Sommerbach, who has uh, written an article at theconversation.com entitled, What are NFTs and why are people paying millions for them? And you go on to say, Lale, in your piece, and I'm quoting just one sentence here, it might sound ridiculous, but the explosive market of crypto collectibles and crypto art is no joke. And we're talking, of course, we mentioned that piece that was sold at Christie's of digital art for just under 64 million American dollars. And some of these bids and some of these digital art pieces are extraordinary and are likely to continue being so. Our our Michael Campbell, the guy who hosts Money Talks here on the weekends, Lolly, explained it to his listeners a couple of weeks ago as a new name for a product people want to buy and sell. And that's non-fungible token. It's kind of an interesting, almost entertaining name, but it's just stuff people want to buy and sell, right? Yeah, that's a very good way to put uh, to put it into words. I agree. It's all about demand and supply to begin with. So um, at this point, there is definitely demand and there's also limited supply uh, because of the fact that NFTs are non-fungible. It means that one NFT is unique from another. So uh, depending on what the desire of the buyer or collector is, uh, they would be willing to spend money on it. Right. And uh, as so far, the uh, it, it seems to be leaning in favor of digital art in terms of collectible items that people want to buy, collectible non-fungible tokens. Art, art pieces seem to be the most attractive. Is it likely this will widen out into other uh, forms of tokens? Oh, that's a very good question. And um, I would say yes, potentially. Um, that connects us to, for example, uh, Elon Musk's tweet about, okay, I want to I wanna, uh, NFT this tweet, which these days people use it as a verb as well, right. which means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create an NFT off of this product, this digital product, being a tweet, being mm-hmm. a song, being a, um, a digital art. Um, I would say, uh, yes, it can expand, but it really depends um, on, uh, um, I would say, the socioeconomic future as well. And also the fact that whether the big players, and that would be the fashion houses, the designers, the brands, whether they would lean into, um, in fact, uh, picking up NFTs as a way to authenticate, a way to uh, value their products. So um, really, um, I think the potential is there, but uh, um, some players have to join if, if we want to see the true valuation in the world of art to happen. Ah, okay. So, Lale, I was asking you before the news break about basically the structure of how of this works, because, again, I, I don't know much about cryptocurrencies to say, uh, and, and know even less about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And so, a typical consumer would want to know uh, sort of how the structure works, who's in charge, who's accountable. And ultimately, I think a consumer would ask a question that you ask in your article at The Conversation. What what does this mean for the future of money? Okay, um, sure. Uh, to your earlier question, the, uh, the way NFTs work, um, in fact, let's say if I'm a digital artist, I would upload my file, the digital file that contains um, my art, mm-hmm. uh, into one of the platforms that I mentioned. For example, Ethereum is one of them. And this is uh, essentially is- a digital auction house then, right? Exactly, exactly. So you upload and you first, create an NFT off of it, and then you auction it. In terms of auctioning, I said that um, some of the latest social media platforms are very, very active in that. One of them is Clubhouse, right. which is a, a, a social media platform in which it's almost like a um, um, live radio show. So people are talking and people are uh, bidding on it. And um, pretty much they promote. So if you go to Clubhouse, there's a lot of uh, rooms, per se, that they talk about NFTs and they promote them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so first create 
the uh, file, which is done on one of the platforms. Like I said, I just said uh, Ethereum, but there's a lot more created. Like Tron has introduced another standard. Ethereum has its own standard. Um, and then basically you create attraction. Um, a lot of the time, the big names help. Um, so, for example, we had... Um, I think I think it was Snoop Dogg last week talking right, yes. about me promoting one of the uh, one of the um, digital productions. So um, so basically, you would set it up for auction, and uh, um, that's how it picks up there. Um, uh, at this point, I would say that's um, pretty much the um, uh, the process. And uh, at this point, as far as I know, and I did research, uh, there is no certain. Uh, security involved in the sense that anyone can create NFT. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be licensed or um, such. Like for mutual funds, you have to be licensed if you want to exactly. um, buy or sell for people. So at this point, it's not regularized. It's fair to say that. Um, and then the second question that you asked for the future of money. Yes. Um, I want to I mention something uh, that might uh, pretty much ring a bell to uh, everyone. So you, you guys probably remember the baseball cards. Like people were willing to trade them uh, for large amounts of money. Mm-hmm. They started in 1950s. They were still popular in 1980s. And um, people considered them as collectibles. Absolutely. Right? So NFTs, I would say, if I want to put it in very simple uh, simile, I would say um, NFTs are this generation's baseball card. Okay. So um, pretty much um, it really depends on uh, what a future holds in terms of potential. So whether the current generation is willing to keep paying for that and whether this would become a, a platform for investment, those are really the, um, uh, the questions that only time will answer. But the potential is definitely there because the technology behind allows this sort of verification and uh, smart uh, contracts properties allows for that. So these people go out into these auction platforms that are unhackable and secure, and they buy an NFT, some digital art perhaps or whatever. But ultimately, is the point of the purchase, Professor Samarbaksh, an investment? And so one leaves it stored on this secure, unhackable website, or is it for pleasure? In which case, how do you display digital art? Oh, very good question. And I would say a very good way to finish the conversation. Um, So um, two answers there. So the first one is, are they doing it for investment or not? I want to open a small digression here. Okay. So uh, we have a generation like uh, that's making money, like young professionals, but the, in, um, in fact, the assets that they have are not large enough to, let's say, invest in real estate, mm-hmm. something that's more traditional, right? So um, if you look at baby boomers at the same age, they were able to purchase houses, more solid and tangible investments. Right. So for the current generation, though, um, we're talking about uh, small amounts of money that they are willing to invest, really. So um, to answer that question, I think the popularity of NFTs, Bitcoin investment, or even the stock market, you're going to see the current generation is very um, uh, drawn into investing in the stock market as well. So I think this all comes from the fact that this allows for uh, pretty much any amount of investment to go into a platform that they like and they support. Uh, this, uh, to answer the second question, how do you use it? Like, I own an yeah. NFT. What do I do with exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. So <laughs> the answer goes back to um, the um, example I gave you about online gaming. So they, the NFTs, in fact, started um, the, um, with popularity in online gaming. So I'll give you an example. A small uh, crypto kitty, which is a digital art, right? Mm-hmm. If I own the NFT, let's say in the world of online gaming, I can make that my profile picture. I'll just give you an example that it means. So it has, it's, it's very tangled with, uh, I would say, uh, a little bit about like um, bragging economy or like uh, the uh, like 
fashion brands mm-hmm. and such. So sure, yeah. it doesn't make sense, uh, um, let's say, immediately, uh, because it doesn't meet any uh, tangible economic need, uh, you won't be able to eat an NFT. <laughs> but what happens is that you can brag pretty much the ownership of an NFT by making it a profile picture of yourself. So uh, is the current generation going to be willing to pay for these amounts later on to be able to display and um, pretty much boast what um, the digital art investments or not, uh, we'll see over time. But uh, that was just a small example of why the ownership matters. So there's certain things you can and cannot do if you have the NFT of that digital art. Interesting. So clearly it's still very much a work in progress and a generational experiment almost. Professor Lale Samarabax, this has been a fascinating interview. You're a wonderful guest and have certainly helped me to understand a little bit more about non-fungible tokens. Hopefully some of my listeners enjoy a little greater appreciation of this new phenomenon. It's, uh, it's, it takes a little while to unpack, but I really appreciate your help this morning. You've been just outstanding. Thank you so much, Sterling. It was a pleasure to talk to you and your audience. Well, we'll hopefully have to do this again once we figure out a little bit more about what to talk to uh, next time. Thanks for this. And by the way, friends, uh, Professor Samraback's article is available to you today at theconversation.com. Look for What Are NFTs and Why Are People Paying Millions for Them? Thanks again to Professor Samraback in Toronto at Ryerson University. I'm quoting now from an article written by our next guest at theconversation.com. Restaurants across Canada have suffered immensely from stay-at-home orders, strict in-person seating capacity restrictions, and other lockdown measures induced by COVID-19. 10% of Canada's independent restaurants have already permanently shut down in light of the pandemic-related hardships, and recent estimates project that another 40% may not survive uh, beyond this spring. We have guests from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business to schedule to join us tomorrow, and uh, Regrettably, they're going to be able to reinforce those statistics rather strongly. To say that it's been a rough year for the restaurant industry is an understatement. All of this written by our guest, Misha Young. Mr. Young is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Davis's Institute of Transportation Studies. He is also a lecturer in the Department of Human Geography at the University of Toronto. And that's where we find Misha Young this morning in the center of the universe. Mr. Young... Misha, good morning and welcome to our show. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's great to have you with us, and it's rather a somber introduction to our conversation, Misha, but it's a reality. I have a son who's a chef. My youngest son is a chef. Uh, His restaurant closed just over a year ago. He has since uh, recalibrated his career and moved on to another uh, area of work activity. He hopes eventually, Misha, to be able to return to cooking, his first love, but his sense of practicality says that may be a while off. Restaurants right across the country are in tough shape. That's very true, yes. As you mentioned, a lot of them have already closed down due to pandemic-related hardships. And uh, without extra support from governments, it, it's going to, we're going to see many more closed down in the years or months to come. And let me continue quoting from your article, Misha, because this sets up the the nub of our conversation. To remain afloat during these trying times, many restaurants have relied, often reluctantly, on food delivery applications like Uber Eats, DoorDash, Skip the Dishes, despite recognizing the untenability of the high commission fees they command, some as high as 30%. That is something that our, many of our guests here on this program, Misha, including the Restaurant Association of BC, have been railing about uh, since these companies came and, and opened up shop here in this, in this market. Uh, same kind of resistance in Toronto I'm, I'm detecting as well. Yes, very much so. The I think across the board in all cities in Canada and North America, for that matter, restaurants, uh, restaurateurs are, are starting to grow more and more worried about the fact that these apps are commanding such high commission fees and are impacting their business model. So what what remedies do we offer? For example, now here in British Columbia, and I'm sure you're aware of this, the governments have intervened uh, to the point where uh, some of these 30% commission rates have been cut in half. We're talking now about uh, 15% ceilings instead of 30%. Is that the kind of intervention you're, you're hoping to see more of? 
Not quite. I'm, my argument is that these uh, measures of capping food delivery fees fall short. Um, capping feed, food delivery fees to 15% instead of 30 does help restaurants in the short run. Right. Um, we've seen some low or some concessions from the apps uh, who have agreed to do so temporarily, at least until the um, temporary lockdown measures in BC or other provinces are lifted. But there's nothing to say that they won't return to their high levels once the uh, lockdown measures are lifted and they're allowed to do so. Now, so that would in, that would uh, sort of indicate that the arrangements that have been reached between some of these more cooperative third-party delivery services and the restaurants is a temporary one at best. Very much so. Um, what we're seeing is that well, all these apps are still unprofitable. This is something that's worth keeping in mind is that the Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes are still not making a profit and they're only funded by venture capitalists right. at this point. So eventually they will want to make some form of profit. And to do so, the, the model is to increase the uh, rates back to 30% or even higher. And in between, uh, and uh, the other factor that we need to at least include from a human being perspective, Misha, is all of those drivers, all of those entrepreneurs who are uh, c- contracting themselves to a skip the dishes or a Uber Eats and making a few bucks on the side. So, uh, yes, the restaurant business is suffering as a result of this, but it's not as it's not as though the delivery services are, are aren't helping some people too. No, that's true. They are they are providing a source of income for these drivers who are now seeing more business with the pandemic. Oh, sure. One idea, though, would be to uh, governments could step in to maybe ensure decent wages, decent benefits for those drivers as well. And now we've seen in, in the United States, and you, you have a connection to the University of California, Davis, so you pay a lot of attention to the U.S. market. We've seen attempts uh, down in the States to uh, uh, and, and organize, I guess would be, I was going to say unionize, but organize uh, drivers for these third-party delivery services into some kind of bargaining unit so that those sorts of basic uh, services or amenities would, would flow to them a little more automatically than they do now. If you're a, an Uber driver, an Uber Eats driver, uh, you don't make a lot of money, do you? No, you don't. It's it's actually uh, much lower than what the apps uh, tell you when you first sign up. And there has been a lot of efforts from the part of these drivers to uh, secure higher wages for themselves right. and not be as precarious uh, labor. But to date, these have not really materialized. And is that simply because of, of a disorganized approach? Or is there strong resistance uh, from the top down, Misha? There's definitely strong resistance from the top down. These uh, app services have fought tooth and nails to prevent uh, any form of union or of organization from the part of their workers. We're speaking with Dr. Misha Young from the University of Toronto's Human Geography Department. He's written a piece at theconversation.com entitled Governments Must Work with Restaurants on a No-Fee Delivery App. And Misha, we were talking about this before the break in terms of these companies, these Uber Eats and so on. They're actually not profitable companies. It's really interesting. You say, and it's quite true, they are currently supported by investor capital. It's still an attractive investment for a lot of people, and that's what's keeping them alive they have yet to turn a profit, any of them. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? It really is, yes. These apps are living off this venture capitalist with the hope that one day uh, they'll capture a large enough market share and start returning uh, money to their investors. And uh, so far, that's it, it, are, are they uh, in a position where, uh, in terms of measurement, you can project a profit at some point, or is it still just wandering in the woods? It's it's hard to say at this point. They have increased uh, dramatically in the past year with the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, as they've increased, there's also been more competition and more apps have entered the market. So their share of overall profit is now divided into more pieces of the pie. Interesting. Now, if we talked about uh, the uh, intervention of government, you figure government has a role to play here. And we've discussed the fact that in British Columbia, we've talked about 15% uh, restrictions instead of the 30% of, of the fees that they were charging earlier. Ontario has also considered this. But you say it's only a short-term solution because once this pandemic is over with and, and these agreed-to reductions in fees uh, will end, then it's, there's no nothing preventing 
preventing these delivery companies from returning to 30% or even higher. So what is, what's the compromise? We, here in British Columbia, uh, we've talked to the, the, a few restaurateurs, Misha, for your, for your comment. Uh, and some of the restaurants are saying, look, uh, just go to our app. Don't go to the Skip the Dishes or the DoorDash or the Whoever app. Go to our app. We'll get it delivered to you. So basically, uh, is this what it's going to take? Restaurants themselves gathering together in some kind of cooperative level to uh, introduce their own delivery services? I think think that's definitely part of it. Um, What we're seeing is that more and more restaurants or restaurant associations are starting to consider developing their own app. The problem is that it's very difficult to uh, create an app and compete with these rest, uh, restaurant delivery giants like Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes. So what I was suggesting in the piece was for governments to take a, a portion of their larger subsidies that they're providing to restaurants and small businesses right now to mm-hmm. cover their fixed costs and help restaurants um, provide these apps at lower costs. So help them have no fees, uh, no delivery fees right now to attract more users in the short term. And once they have a large enough base of users in the long term, these apps could then be uh, not no longer sustained or, or subsidized by governments and operate um, sufficiently. Okay. And of course, the, the obvious question to follow that with is how much is this going to cost, especially given the fact that enormous amounts of capital have already been poured into the restaurant and hospitality industries strictly as, as relief, obvious relief money for an industry that has just been absolutely decimated. How much on top of what's already been spent, Misha, would be required to, to improve this delivery bit? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, there's the federal government's Regional Relief and Recovery Fund, which has uh, poured more than $1.5 billion to help small businesses and medium businesses, including restaurants. Right. And the idea would be to take a fraction of that large sum to help these uh, restaurant-led efforts to uh, provide lower commission fees during the pandemic. So instead of just taking a fraction of that subsidy to develop the apps, to help them advertise the apps, uh, in the short run, but in the long run, hoping that they would have a, that would enable them to garner a large enough base of users to compete with these larger uh, giants in the food delivery industry. Mm, okay, we have a, a a conflict in terms of funding sources, though. I would think the money that you're talking about in, in terms of relief programs is federal, and in terms of administering these sorts of uh, restaurant and food delivery issues, well, that would be a more local or provincial issue. So, how do you how do you square that circle in terms of the flow of the dollars? That's a good question. So the fund itself could, a portion of it could come from the federal government. There's also in BC, the small and medium sized business recovery grants, or in Ontario, where I'm from, there's the main street recovery plan. So taking portions of these larger pools of money to help uh, the restaurant industry, which they're already doing. So it would just be moving the money instead of subsidizing the fixed costs, it would be helping them on their variable costs and helping them with the long-term solution looking forward. One thing, if I can quickly mention, is that the one study that came out recently by uh, researchers at Dalhousie University is that in the past six months, uh, 64% of Canadians have ordered food online. Mm -hmm. But what's even more striking is that 50% of these people say that they will continue doing so at least once a week once the pandemic is over. So these delivery apps are not going anywhere. And it's important for restaurants to adapt their business model to accommodate that. So I think that's where the governments have to step in by providing a no-fee delivery service. Interesting, because there's no question that restaurants, just as a business sector, have completely had to revise their business plans recently again with all of this. And it is true. I think that the pandemic has changed our behavior and many of our consumer habits more or less permanently. And I'm not at all surprised, Misha, to hear those numbers in terms of people who are quite comfortable ordering in once a week. That's that's become a thing, and it's, it's not a bad thing. Right, right. And it's not going anywhere. And it's, it's not only in the food delivery uh, world, but also online shopping and other purchases of uh, purchasing behaviors have changed uh, dramatically with the COVID-19 pandemic.
So as uh, if if governments are unable to to be a more financial assistance, is it possible? Again, you said restaurants are already doing some of these things. Is it possible that the restaurants themselves, as a collective, are can take the bit in their teeth and and just get this done by themselves? Uh, if they lack the appropriate support, you're hoping would show up. Absolutely. I think restaurant associations are taking the initiatives and are putting these apps together. And there is interest from the part of restaurants who see this as an option where they can keep a larger share of their uh, sales. The the missing piece here is to get consumers on board as well. Right. So if us as consumers uh, start realizing that if we continue buying goods or purchasing online orders through Uber Eats and other options, which take up to 30 percent, likely a lot of the restaurants that we have come to care for will no longer be there in the near future. So if we really want to ensure the vitality of our restaurants and bars within our cities, then it's our, it's, it's up to us to start using those apps that are lower commission fees that are created by restaurateurs. Indeed, and that's uh, certainly been the message from restaurants in this corner of Canada, Misha, for the last many months. And I thank you uh, for joining us this morning to reinforce it one more time. A pleasure to have you, sir. Uh, enjoyed the conversation very much. Thank you very much. My pleasure. With the arrival of spring comes a revival of our desire for fresh fruits and vegetables. But unless you're buying them directly from the source, is there any way to know you're getting the best quality? Well, there's a startup in the Fraser Valley trying hard to remove the guesswork from the equation, giving us a convenient way to purchase fresh, local, and organic ingredients straight from local farmers and vendors. As such, it makes farm-to-table dining possible at home. This new company in Abbotsford is called Direct food store and it's a pleasure to welcome a couple of representatives from them today colin schmidt is the ceo of wise box solutions of which direct food is a subsidiary mr schmidt colin good morning and uh, raymond uh, zabata is the ceo of open technologies uh, who is with us as well uh, mr zabata uh, raymond good morning to you Good morning. Oh, ah, there you are. Ray, where are you today? Are, are, my, my producer, Ray, says you're somewhere in South America. Is that the case? That's correct. I'm currently in Colombia in the city of Medellin, uh, working on some uh, opportunities here to expand our operations. Uh, agriculture seems to be a crisis worldwide. Yes. So we're we're looking to, to work with the government here. Interesting, because uh, this, this concept that you have here in Vancouver in the Fraser Valley is also uh, something you're trying to repeat in the state somewhere in North Carolina. So this is a project that you think has a, a lot of legs, Ray. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, we're looking at several uh, Canadian cities, uh, including Edmonton, uh, Winnipeg, Victoria, uh, Toronto, but we also uh, are recently going to be, uh, in fact, in the next week or so, going to be launching in the South Carolinas and North Carolina, potentially, uh, after in, and expanding to Georgia uh, at, and um, Florida and uh, a couple of the other states that we're targeting. So there is a, a tremendous amount of potential and legs uh, with regard to what we're doing as we, we we tend to think that we're, we're extremely unique in, in, in how we're uh, bringing a technology platform to the market. Indeed. Colin Schmidt is with us now from Westbox uh, Subsidiary, or Solutions, rather, here in Vancouver. Colin, good morning. Welcome to you, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you both. Uh, you got Ray down there in Columbia and Colin in, I'm assuming, Abbotsford. So it's an interesting uh, stretch you've got going between the two of you. But the, the concept is wonderful. Uh, Colin, uh, Westbox, or sorry, Wisebox Solutions is the company that owns the direct food store. So tell us about where the idea came from and, and why a guy like Ray Zabata is in Columbia right now really excited about getting this idea not only just out of uh, Canada, but around the world. Certainly. Uh, the core idea comes from the fact that uh, during the initial days of the pandemic, uh, there was a fair amount of disruption in the food supply chains. Uh, some of the largest outbreaks we had here in the Fraser Valley were at food processing plants yep. and warehouses and distribution centers. Uh, we saw there potentially the crisis could have been much worse than it was at that time frame. But also at the same time, we already had this direct marketplace technology from other lines of business. We saw a really good application of our existing technologies, so it was really quick to pivot, 
into this new industry. So is this all about online, Colin? Do people here uh, in Metro Vancouver uh, who want to buy food directly from the farm and now have this this conduit to get that done? So is it? And, and, and so a couple of questions there. What is your delivery range, first of all? Certainly. It's from Chilliwack through Vancouver, okay. including even uh, Delta, Richmond, etc., uh, both sides of the river. Okay. So that, uh, and and as I understand it, with the sort of minimum order, there's not even a, a delivery fee charge, correct? Correct. Free delivery. So it, it's all done online. You go to uh, the website and you just uh, load up your cart as you would shopping for anywhere else, right? Correct. And the great thing is you can buy from multiple farms and vendors at the same time. Uh, you're actually going to get a sec- separate credit card charge, a separate invoice from each one of them because you're buying direct, right. even though you can shop with them together. And all of your food from all of those farms is going to arrive at your doorstep at the same time. Interesting. And to Ray Zabata in, in South America, I guess, Ray, getting the farmers on side is probably the easiest part of the equation. It's persuading the Internet providers and the consumers to come around to this approach, right? Yeah, the consumer behavior, is, as uh, we've identified very early in the process, is the, uh, uh, you know, is, is the bigger nut to, to, to crack. Yeah. Uh, however, on the other hand, uh, as we all know in, in, in our region, in Vancouver, it is, it is fun and exciting to be able to, to shop and, and uh, go to the uh, farmer's market and so forth. Sure. But with, the, with the COVID uh, situation, that you know, makes things uh, a lot harder. But at the end of the day, we are, we're not a grocery business. We are a tech company. We are a platform. Um, so as Colin noted, uh, everything is, is extremely direct. So you keep that experience uh, of the old traditional sort of go to, go to market on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, so, so that, you know, part is is very uh, enticing and, and appealing to to our consumers. It is indeed, and Colin, that's that's what you're playing off of, right? That that love of the farmers market, the fresh produce, and I think one of the one of the most attractive parts of any farmers market anywhere, Colin, is the ability to interact with the people who grow the stuff. Is this your? Is are these your potatoes? Yeah, yeah. We just we used to harvest them a couple of weeks ago. Yak, 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 and away you go. And that's part of the fun of of shop at farmers markets so when you have the opportunity you miss the human interaction with the supplier or well not entirely because somebody's got to deliver them right yeah entirely as our delivery drivers uh, we definitely aim for the best of course uh, we've got lots of great reviews of our drivers uh, in our reviews on facebook and google reviews and a good thing about uh, the farmers is we get to highlight them we get to put them in the public spotlight in a way they wouldn't otherwise so we have vendor farm stories and videos uh, we have the vendors sharing recipes from their families uh, that they've passed down through generations sure. of their farm. And Colin, what are the most uh, sought-after items? Uh, you would know this because you're, you're in charge of where, where the traffic goes. What do people, uh, consumers in, in homes in uh, Metro Vancouver, like to order most, uh, online or otherwise, from direct farm supply people? Certainly. The uh, biggest selling one is definitely the uh, beef, actually. Oh. Uh, and uh, chicken and fish uh, is certainly there as well. Uh, we have a uh, Goat's Pride Dairy uh, and the Egg Store, for example, is uh, two standout examples. Uh, and uh, we've got some uh, some interesting uh, First Nations uh, vendors, uh, including Ravens Brewery and uh, the Bannock Queen. Oh, and okay. Salmon sales as well. All right. So now all someone needs to do is just do do. You, is it like Costco? Do you have to become a member and have a card and all that kind of stuff, or is it just uh, you just go online to directfood.store and away you go? You just uh, head off to directfood.store and away you go. No membership required. Interesting stuff. Now, Ray, how easy is this technology to export to uh, you're in South America this morning or the United States? Uh, you're, you're the technology guy that has the overriding platform that makes this all possible. How, how um, transportable is it? Well, it's, uh, it's extremely what we like to use the term portable and reusable. Okay. In fact, we're negotiating currently with uh, European uh, distributors who would like to literally take over the entire uh, Eastern Europe sort of uh, as, as a, uh, a regional focus. Um, so the, the, the technology is very plug-and-play. Okay. You know, what I would like to compare this to is a Craigslist. I mean, Craigslist just exploded because 
It was very simple to use. And mm-hmm. in fact, to this day, it's very, very simple. So we would like to think that it is very portable and reusable in, in other jurisdictions. The key, the key fundamental uh, environment from a technology perspective where each region will m- need work is, is the ability for payment processing. But because we have a payment processing, right, okay, yeah. Sort of a plat- platform. Mm-hmm. Colin, how's, uh, how's the local reaction to all of this so far? Oh, uh, very good. Uh, we have some really excited repeat customers, uh, and that uh, list is just growing every day. Uh, so uh, the majority of people who come and purchase from us the first time uh, turn into repeat customers, which uh, just uh, shows how enthusiastic they are. And how long has the store been open, Colin? Only since August of last year, okay. so not even, one, uh, not even one year yet. So, uh, and all a person needs to do is just go to directfood.store, uh, and there you go. You can poke around and uh, grab a cart and uh, have a look and uh, add a few items. And what's a typical, if you order, say, on a Saturday, how soon would uh, some of that stuff be delivered to my, uh, uh, my home? Yeah, we deliver on Tuesdays. Thursdays and Saturdays. Oh, okay. The order cutoff is at noon the day before. Oh, all right. So that's not bad at all. It's an exciting project uh, to raise uh, in, uh, in in South America and Colombia. Ray Zabato, thanks for taking time out of your ex- ex- expedition to South America to apply this technology in a brand new marketplace. It's great to have you on the show, and good luck to you. My pleasure, sir. And Colin Schmidt, thanks for jumping in here uh, from a, a little more local perspective on a Saturday morning. Uh, and we wish you and your colleagues at uh, Direct Food Store considerable success. This is a, and a great time of year to talk about it as all the new stuff starts coming down the pike, right? Yes, for sure. Lots of good fresh produce on its way. All right. Directfood.store. And our thanks to both our guests this morning, to uh, Colin Schmidt and to Ray Zabata uh, for joining us on the program and uh, talking more about farm-to-table dining, something British Columbians enjoy a great deal. Thank you both, gentlemen. We are joined on the line by the Canucks beat reporter for The Athletic. Harmon Dayal is with us. Harm, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, it's a, the question is, how are the Canucks doing? First, there was one, then three, and this morning we're hearing eight and counting. What's the COVID status of the Vancouver Canucks organization this morning? It's not very good. As you mentioned, um, it started at one, went to two, and has climbed to eight. And um, there are indications, early kind of reports, speculation that that number could be uh, growing as well. It obviously started on Tuesday. Adam Godek uh, was uh, placed in the COVID protocol uh, following Tuesday practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the issue there, and I mean, it's easy for us to, to second guess in, in hindsight, but, um, you know, he was pulled mid-practice, which means he had kind of shared the ice with all of his teammates. Sure. Um, and so at that point, it, it, it was a little bit strange that they had um, on Wednesday or Wednesday the day after they had morning skate where um, before they had gone the, the test results for the entire team, um, you know, you had a, group, a bunch of guys there, uh, high risk contacts um, all, all together. And so you wonder if that um, would have, you know, hit, uh, helped the, the transmission adversely. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you got the, you got the results back at, uh, 6 p.m. just, uh, just an hour and a half before, uh, Wednesday's game against Calgary. That's was supposed right. To happen. Yeah. Um, and at that point, you know, it was evident that they had to cancel that, uh, cancel that game. There were more cases and, um, it sounds like, um, it's not just that they've contracted it, but, um, a few of these guys, it sounds like they are pretty seriously ill. So, um, it's looking really rough right now. So what is the COVID protocol, Harm? What do these players have to do? They have to go home and self-isolate and uh, uh, have no contact with anyone? What do what the NHLPA agreed to with COVID protocol rules? Right. So it's, as you mentioned now, if you're on the COVID protocol list, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you're uh, positive. You could also be there, uh, be on there in, in case you're a high-risk contact, which sure. happened early in the year for a player like JT Miller. But by all indication, these are, um, it would seem, uh, positive cases. And um, it, it becomes one of those really tough situations where if you end up, um, because you got to remember, we're only a couple days into this, it's, uh, it, it's quite possible, again, that the numbers on 
on this list continue growing for this team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's the case, then you re- run into a really dicey situation where if you look at, um, say, uh, the Montreal Canadiens went through uh, a similar situation a week or two ago. That's right. But they were able to sort of keep the outbreak just to two players. Their, right. their transmission was minimal. And so they just had uh, a week off where they, were, where they closed the practice facilities, didn't practice at all. Um, didn't have any team sessions. Mm-hmm. The, the arena was closed, off limits. Um, and then they were able to get back to practice and recently have gone back to game action. But you look at the Canucks' situation. Um, Very different. I, I mean, for, yeah, for, forget like getting back to game action. Right now, it, it really sounds like, um, you know, health-wise, there, are, there is a lot of concern for, for some of these guys. And um, just because of the raw number of players infected here, um, it's it's a really murky situation for the league to, league to try and navigate right now, and there honestly aren't a lot of answers as to kind of what comes next because you, you, we still don't really know the full scope of this. We've heard that a variant could be involved. Well, that's too, so. as, yes, I was about to say that. You know, this is what Dr. Bonnie Henry's been talking about for the last couple of weeks, and this is why we're in this circuit breaker three-weeker right now. It's about the uh, uptick in caseload numbers for young people combined with the new variants that are at now at play in, in uh, British Columbia. And so we have a, a group of very healthy young people and apparently no, uh, harm uh, uh, one of the variants is at play here as well. So it's precisely what Dr. Henry's been talking about. Exactly. And I think it's a reminder for all of us, too, where um, we're seeing how transmissible these variants are, uh, in addition to the fact that you know, the, the kind of impact and, and consequences that they're having, you know, if these professional athletes in their mid, uh, in their mid twenties and, and early thirties are, um, are really seriously feeling the effects that, you know, they're apparently pretty ill. Yeah. Then I think that's uh, that's a reminder for everyone else of how serious this, um, all is. And, and at this point, I think the biggest, uh, question or, or, or just what you're hoping for right now is that there aren't any long-term implications um, we obviously still don't know uh, a ton about um, these variants in terms of long-term consequences. And um, we're just hoping at this point that, uh, you know, hockey aside for, for a second here. Oh, sure. Uh, that these guys that can 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 recover fully and, and don't have any lasting uh, impact beyond this. Because, um, again, anytime uh, there, there's a tweet from one of the Connexus players, or Connexus players' mothers, uh, Zach McEwen, where it was just, you know, the number one priority for a lot of these families is just making sure that their kids are um, are, are able to oh, sure. kind of, you know, make it through this. And, and they've they've been kind of uh, risking, you know, their selves, um, like a lot of people have for their profession during this pandemic. And, and right now you're just hoping that they can all uh, be uh, healthy sooner rather than, la- rather than later. Absolutely. Harmon, uh, we only got about a minute here, and I wanted to talk about makeups. Uh, of course, they're not eligible to play, according to what I'm hearing, until the very earliest next Thursday. So far, four games have been scrubbed. Possibly more will be. That's a lot of making up in a very compressed period of time at the end of the regular season before playoffs. Yeah, my guess would be, um, for starters, I think it it's probably going to be longer than a week at least. Um, and once that happens, I think um, you may see, you know, you, you may run into a situation where they add a few games at, uh, at the end of the regular season. Yeah. Um, but there, there are some of those games you just may not be able to make up. And That's at right. that point, you, you probably won't see the Canucks get to a full 56 games. You'll probably see the league just run on points percentage to figure out things like uh, the lottery situation. Yeah. Harmon Dayall, thanks for this. Appreciate you getting up early on a Saturday morning. It's not a fun story to cover, but as I said at the, at the outset, all of Canada, all of Canada knows the Vancouver Canucks have a serious COVID-19 issue. So thanks for helping us understand what's going on this morning in Canuckland, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that those guys get better, all of them, real fast. Appreciate your, your joining us this morning, Harmon. Let's do it again soon. Thanks for having me. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.